Today we start a brand new sermon series called Follow Me. Uh, the month of October, we're going to spend the whole month digging into uh, the words of Jesus when he first started his ministry and in, in inviting others to follow him. Uh, what does that mean? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Uh, it was kind of inspired to, to take this direction. I was listening to a, a speaker at the Gospel Coalition's annual conference, Sam Alberry. And he, he was talking about discipleship and why it still matters and how we kind of lose the plot along the way, which is true. Anytime you kind of start down a journey, there are times we forget what we were invited into. We get so far down the path that we're not sure how we got on the path to begin with or what that path actually was. And he said this uh, that really arrested me and, and caught my attention. He said, there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple. And that's kind of the jumping off point for the next four weeks is to, to think about this idea that there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple. If you look through the scriptures, it's absolutely true that, that we can't simply allow our mental belief to check some sort of religious box and then go along living our lives that when Jesus asks us to follow him, that discipleship is part of that journey, that our willingness to walk the way of Jesus is the way that we've been invited into. And so this is sort of this foundational statement that we're going to uh, take a peek at, and then we're going to apply that week after week to various angles of discipleship. And we're going to start in, in Mark chapter 1. And there, Jesus started his ministry by calling disciples to follow him. And it's interesting to note that when Jesus in Matthew 28 is ending his ministry in, in so many ways, he's, he's inviting his disciples to go and make more disciples. He starts with others by, by calling them to be his disciples who make disciples, and he ends this time by calling those who follow him to make disciples. It's as if Jesus maybe cared a little bit about this concept of discipleship. And this is interesting for me because I, if you ask my children, they will roll their eyes and say, yes, it's true. I love the color gray. Gray is, I'm all about gray. We have gray sheets. (laughs) We have gray walls. I have lots of gray t-shirts. If there's a reason the covenant t-shirts keep coming out gray, it's my fault. I like gray. I love gray skies and dreary winter weather rainy days. I love all of it. As gray as it can get, I want more gray. When the leaves fall and everybody gets seasonal affective disorder, I'm at my most joyous. I just frolic around in the grayness of the world. I like gray skies, gray days, gray arguments. Uh, Love the idea that you can take two sides of any arguments and and that there's a lot of gray in everything that we can kind of get on both sides and the nuance. And I love that. And what's interesting is that what we're going to see today and throughout this series is that Jesus leaves no room for gray in his invitation. The scripture gives us an astounding black and white clarity on what it means to become disciples. And so let's go to Mark chapter 1. We'll put it on the screens. You can read it along with me. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And followed him. So first things. Looking at this passage, first things we're going to see uh, claims being made and repentance being called for. And and I said Sam Albury was kind of the 
the inspiration for where we're going to go this month. And one of the things that he said at the beginning is, he said, this sort of serves as Jesus' introductory press conference to, to ministry. He kind of taps the microphone and he can say whatever he wants to say. And what he chooses to say, unlike a, a, the new coach who's been hired who decides that since the last team was bad at defense, we're really going to focus on defense, or the last team had behavioral issues, we're really going to focus on discipline. Instead of the politician or the coach or whoever it is that taps the microphone and just tells us what we want to hear, Jesus says some wildly important things. He comes in swinging, I would say. He says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom is at hand. What he's saying is all the stuff that's been promised for generations, all of the things in the Hebrew Bible, in your Old Testament, all the things that have been promised generation after generation after generation, the things that we are waiting for, the promises of God that have been offered up, all of those things are here and it's me. Jesus is very clearly beginning by saying, I am the Messiah. And this presents a really important moment, especially for, especially those in our world who would subscribe to universalist kind of beliefs or these, the Unitarian concepts of everyone can get to heaven, there's lots of different paths. For humanists who would say, eh, you know, it's all kind of the same. What Jesus is saying is it's not at all the same. And so our willingness to begin to listen to Jesus eliminates our willingness to uh, entertain other arguments that these other faith models can work. Because if Jesus is saying exclusively, I am the chosen Messiah, the son of the living God who has come to rescue God's people, then he is making a pretty radical claim. C.S. Lewis popularized the idea that this is the liar, lunatic, or Lord uh, kind of statement. Meaning that if Jesus is coming to say he's the son of God, that doesn't leave a whole lot of room for him to just be a good teacher or a wise prophet or, you know, one of those, he's like Gandhi or he's like Muhammad or he's Jesus, you know, whatever. They're all, they all have wisdom. We should listen to all of them and apply it to our lives. That would be idiotic behavior because Jesus doesn't leave room for that. Either he is just a liar, he's an evil cult leader who's coming in lying, knowing that he's not who he says he is, but trying to get a following anyway, or he's a lunatic who actually believes he's the son of God, but he isn't, and so he's a crazy cult leader. Or he is who he says he is, and he came to do what he came to do, and he's actually the son of God, which would make him Lord. But there's not any room between those two. He can't be kind of a good teacher, but not Lord, because I don't know about you, but if I had a lying lunatic teacher, I wouldn't call them a good teacher. Someone who spouts lies is not good. And so we have to kind of choose our lane right at the outset, and it doesn't allow us to pick him and take Jesus' sayings and put them on the wall or take Jesus' ideas and, and hold them up to other philosophical self-help things and go, well, it's kind of all good. It doesn't work like that. There's no room for that. You can't kind of follow Jesus, and it starts because of this claim. It's an in or out sort of thing. Either you're in with his claim, or maybe you're following this nut. And you have to reconcile that. What Jesus does in this first moment is he asserts his lordship. And then the rest of his life goes on to prove that lordship. I was listening to a legal seminar this week on church legality things. It's a super interesting part of my job. I went to a two-hour legal seminar, and, and a lot of it I just sort of took some notes and made sure we're going to address it as elders to make sure the church is protected and all this X, Y, Z, dot the I and cross the T. And, 
And it's all good, important stuff. But the thing that I actually heard that I'll never forget is this lawyer says, consistency is the evidence of sincerity. Consistency is the evidence of sincerity. Which is to say, if Jesus is sincere in his uh, declaration of lordship, it will bear out in his life. We will be able to see in the consistent living out of Jesus' days whether that is sincere or not. And so you can flip forward. We're going to stay in Mark 1 today, but if you want to flip forward all the way to the end of the Gospels, if you want to go see eyewitness testimony of a risen Savior, it's all there. So the sincerity of Jesus is no longer a question. He asserts his lordship, and the sincerity is there because the consistency is there, because the evidence is there. The second thing he says is repent and believe the gospel, believe the good news. As you have probably heard before, if you've been in church at all, repent uh, means to turn around, 180 degrees. And here's why it matters. In our world today, 60% of Americans believe that people are generally good. Like intrinsically, inherently, people are good, good people. As you make more money, the surveys reveal that people actually believe even more that people are good. So uh, households over $100,000 in income, 79% of those people believe that people are inherently good. Not that their life is getting better because of it, just that everybody must be good because look how well it's all working out for me. People are intrinsically, inherently good is this belief that people have. And the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says that all people are entirely and inherently wicked. To which we all say, wait, not me. Entirely, inherently wicked. That it is sin, like a poison, like a drop of poison, an otherwise pure bottle of water. That drop of poison sullies the whole thing. And so that you and I, because of sin, are entirely poisoned. That's the truth of Scripture. And if that's true, then Jesus is not coming to add some helpful teaching to some otherwise good people. He's not here to tweak our direction just a little bit or deliver a really cool series of TED Talks to help us make some important adjustments in our life. He says, repent. Jesus begins his ministry by calling those nearest him to make a total life reorientation and to begin to orient their lives not around anything other than him. When we moved back from Africa after being missionaries, uh, South Africa people drive on the left side of the road and the steering wheels on the left side of the car and the clutches in the middle. My wife was uh, our driver in South Africa. She drove everywhere. I drove once, blew out two tires, never again. So she was our driver. She drove all over the place. City of 10 million, she's taking deliveries and picking people up and all the errands for the church and the banking. We did it all. And she drove everywhere. When we got back to America and someone handed her the keys to a car, she uh, couldn't figure out what side of the road to be on. She was always on the wrong side of the road because she spent an entire year driving on the left side and feeling very good about it. And so we would be going places and she'd just kind of be drifting into the left side of the road. And I'd be like, uh, that car is coming at us and you might want to maybe just don't do that. And she would come back, she'd go off by herself and she'd come back with, with uh, like this sheepish look on her face. And I'd be like, what happened? She goes, I did it again. And in Texas, there's the frontage roads, these like kind of highways parallel to the highway. There's these three lane, 55 mile an hour roads that run parallel to all the highways. And, and so you exit onto the frontage road and you make your way from there, but they're just everywhere. And they're one way. And the day I felt kind of most scared is when she says, I took the, the turnaround at the highway and I ended up going the wrong way on the frontage road. And that was pretty scary. I'm like, yeah, cars coming at you at 60 miles an hour is pretty scary. She'd been going the wrong way. 
the kingdom orients a certain way, and we are in it as wrong-way drivers. We start out our, our plot in this life as wrong-way drivers. There's no gray in that. There's no maybe turn one degree and it'll work out better for you. No, that's a broadside instead of a head-on. That's no better. The, the only option when you're driving the wrong way on the highway is to repent to 180 degrees, turn around. And God's love shows us and opens our eyes to the fact that we're going the wrong way. God's love and kindness is to show us the wrong way sign on the highway of life. And we feel in ourselves when we're told that there's something wrong with us, on some guttural level, even we reject that. I don't want to be told. I have a kid who doesn't like being corrected. I got two kids, so flip a coin, you can figure it out. It's both of them. They don't like being corrected, and they feel mortally wounded when you tell them something's wrong with them. Hey, you did this wrong, and they just melt, which is a parenting issue that we're working on. So we, we did that to them, I realize this, but they hate to be wrong. They hate to be told they didn't do something right. Why? The same reason that you and I don't like to hear that there's something wrong with us from the start, and we want to reject that. And we go, what a kind of God is going to let us start out going the wrong way? And then, and what kind of God, all he's going to do is put up wrong way signs and wait for us to figure it out? God loves us because of, because of what he's like and not what we're like. An important truth is God loves us not because of what we're like, but because of what he's like. He loves us so much that even though we're going the wrong way, we're going away from him, we're sending all the way down the road, that he's willing because of his great love for us to still put up the sign. This is the unfathomable, unlearned, unearned kind of love that leads to repentance. When someone loves you enough to stop you on your way to destruction. And it's important to recognize that God doesn't love you because of what you've done. He loves you first because of who he is. And his hope is that that love, that kindness, that overwhelming mercy begins to turn you in the right direction. While God is willing to love us right where we are, his love for us is so great that he is unwilling to leave us where we are. That's kindness. He's willing to insert himself while he loves you right where you are with all of your junk and all of your shame and all of your pain. He loves you right there. His love is so great that he's unwilling to let you stay there. So it's one thing to get the car facing the right direction. The question is, so now where do I go? And Jesus says, follow me. It's as if someone walked in right now. The picture is this. He's talking to these fishermen who are tending to their nets. They're, they're working out their careers in the middle of their job. And he says, follow me. And they do. This is the same as if someone walked in that side door right there and they shouted over me and they said, hey, Kyle, uh, follow me. And I'd lay my Bible down and I'd take my microphone off and I'd just walk out in the middle of the sermon. To which you go, uh, you weren't done yet. Which is exactly what must have happened when he walks in and he says, follow me. And these fishermen look around and they go, okay, let's do that. It's in the middle of the job. It's in the middle of the career. It's in the middle of the climbing of their corporate ladder on their dad's fishing boat that they say, yeah, I'm out. Cool. And we don't recognize the severity of that. But it's a big deal. So explore what Jesus doesn't say because we go, well, I would have followed too if Jesus would have asked. 
And yet what we have made the following Jesus is not necessarily what he's invited them to at all. Jesus doesn't come in and say, let's explore some things. Let's explore some new ways of thinking. Do you want to do that with me? Jesus doesn't want to say, can I introduce you to some spiritual self, self-help? Can, can, can you come with me and let's go try mindfulness together and just see what that leads to? Jesus doesn't say, hey, do you want to go take on the political system with me? Get really involved? Do you want to add your agenda to my platform? Because I'm going to have a platform. Jesus doesn't say, hey, do you want to maybe adopt some new beliefs? I know you believe some things, but you can add these on. It'll really help you. Jesus doesn't invite them to an emotional high while singing some religious songs about once a week together. Jesus doesn't introduce them to religion or invite them into some sort of system of obligations. Jesus introduces himself as the way and says, follow me. And they can't waffle on this. It's a binary option. It's yes or it's no. Anything other than dropping their nets and following him is a no. Not yet is no. Maybe later is no. Can I ask you some questions? Is no. It's a yes or a no. Before my wife and I were my wife and I, when we were just friends, she very bravely uh, took me out to coffee. And then we sat down, and I could tell she had something heavy on her heart. She goes, I really need to share something with you. And I said, okay, you can do that. How sweet of me, right? With a tear in her eye, she goes, look, I know we're, we're friends, and I really like being your friend, but I have to tell you there's, there's, more, uh, there's more to it than friends for me. I think there's a whole lot more here, and I just need you to know that. And I was like, wow, okay. And she goes, and really what I just need to do is I, I just need to hear you say that you don't feel the same way, so then I can move on. And I said, oh, what a perfect movie line, Right? to which I take the coffees and I swipe them off the table. <laughs> and we embrace and, and our love rockets into the stratosphere from there. I didn't see that movie, and so I said, no, you're right, I don't feel like that. I said, but it's really, like, cool of you that you would tell me. That's super brave. Like, we'll be better friends now because of this. And she's just sitting there weeping like, oh, this is the worst day of my life. It it was a no. And I never said no. I just said, well, you know, not not today. That's cool, though. Sweet on you, champ. (laughs) It's a no. If it wasn't a yes, it was a no. A couple weeks later, the Lord opened my eyes. I'd been praying for about six months for a partner to go and change the world with. In my head, as I prayed, I was thinking it was some bearded dude who would go backpacking and, you know, all through Africa and change the world. And a couple weeks later, God kind of nudged me and whispered, and he's like, she's better than a bearded dude. <laughs> yeah. And then the scales fell off, and here we are. And i like, she'll tell you this. It wasn't very long into that process when I went, hey, you know what? Remember at the coffee shop? There may be something to this. It was... Um, a magnitude of days later that I said, look, we're not doing this to be like dating. I was like, if it's a yes, it's a yes, and I'm going to marry you, and we're going to do this. And that's the sort of binary choice being offered to us with Jesus. It's, is it a yes or is it a no? We live in a world where holding our options open is one of our chief desires. We live in the gig economy, hookup culture, 
You don't buy a car. You just get an Uber. You don't commit to a relationship. You just go to Tinder. We are a culture that beyond almost all other things wants open options. We follow people on Instagram and Twitter because it's easy if we don't like what they say next, we can just unfollow them. And this is not the following Jesus invites us to. This is called fandom. Jesus is not asking these fishermen to become fans of his or buy his jersey or retweet him. He doesn't care. Being a fan means you change whenever you want. You burn the jersey, you buy the new t-shirt, you will follow, you unfollow. That's a fan. Following Jesus starts with a turn and it includes a surrender of control. Because commitment almost always equals a loss of control. Think of any major commitment you make in your life and it almost always equals a loss of control. Buy a new car, you no longer have the ability to buy all of the other cars. Get a spouse and your dating life is now sort of cut off. You've given up those other options. If you buy a house, guess what? The house owns you and it isn't easy or free to get out of it. You take a job and you give up your right to take all the other jobs. All of these commitments we make are relegating ourselves to leaving other options on the table. We live in a world where we hope not to make up our minds because then we haven't invested too much. And this is why so many people just dip their toes into the Jesus waters. Let me just wade in and see how it is here, people say. Let me keep my options open. If it doesn't work for me, I can go back to trying mindfulness or Hinduism or Buddhism or atheism or whatever ism it is that seems to work for the day or whatever the fans that we are of other people, whatever they're trying maybe. This person I follow on Instagram, they're trying this new thing, so I'm gonna try the new thing. People say, you know what, Jesus just doesn't work for me. To which I say, yeah, that's exactly right. Jesus doesn't work for you. Jesus doesn't work for you. We take Jesus on like we take on a a supplement in our diet. If I take the Jesus pill in the morning with my vitamin and my vitamin D because I don't want to have seasonal affective disorder, so I got to take vitamin D. If I just take a little Jesus pill, maybe my life will get better. Jesus doesn't work for you. He's not your spiritual butler. And we wonder why it doesn't work for us because he was never designed to work for us. He came to lay his life down for us and to invite us to follow him in that, which is wholly different than take my Jesus pill and hope this Christianity thing works out for me. He says, follow me, become my disciple. If you want to follow me, you're going to carry a cross like I am. You're going to experience hardship and persecution like I do. You're going to have a life that it may not be easy, but it's right and it is good. And then we wonder why people say Jesus doesn't work for me. Because if you take that on, you're not taking on Jesus. You're taking on some false religion. He's inviting you not to have some self-help addition to your life, but he's inviting you to lose your life for the sake of finding it to make an active commitment. He asked these fishermen to go and be fishers of men. He doesn't invite them into belief. Hey guys, you want to believe in me? Keep doing your thing. You you do? Check the box. You want to pray the prayer right now? Let's pray it. Check it. Good to go. See you guys later. What does he say? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. You're going to be, your whole paradigm is going to shift. The way you see the world is going to change and you are going to be actively following me. He invites him into active commitment. Jesus doesn't invite us into mental assent but active commitment. And that's a hard thing for us because we live in a world where we're kind of hopeful that people will cross the belief line. We hold out the part where we say, but Jesus invites us to follow him. And in the day of Jesus, that didn't mean clicking a button so you'd get notifications on your phone. That meant 
dropping it and walking the way he walked. It's not a thought exercise. The reality is that your life clearly reflects your faith right now. Your behavior, it reflects your beliefs. Are you following Jesus today? Said another way, if if being a Christian was illegal and you were taken to court and someone alleged you were a Christian, would there be enough evidence to commit, to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? Have you mentally assented to Jesus being maybe who he says he is, or are you actively involved and actively committed to the way that he's invited you into? It's not a works-based thing. It's a decision that we've either done it or we haven't. There's either fruit on the tree or there's not. Ultimately, follow me. Jesus says, follow me. And that's a rebuke of every other way. Jesus is saying nothing else will do. Nothing else will satisfy. And that includes all the different things we try to make Jesus into. About scoring religious points or singing for an emotional high. About getting God in on my agenda. Jesus came to undo all of that. And when we find Jesus, we discover that there is nothing else like him. No matter what we've tried to make him, it is his presence and his holiness that is irresistible. It is his presence that we find so satisfying. It is his presence that we long for. It is his presence. Not his stuff, not his blessings, not his, even his promises. It's him. Jesus is the gift. Jesus is the reward. Nothing else compares. There is no such thing as a Christian who isn't a disciple. That's true. So it is essential and it is the invitation today to come back to where you started and to consider, are you a disciple? To re-engage his call and to hear his follow me afresh. To turn away from the world and to find yourself caught up in his presence again. Because he is the gift and he is the reward. It's not the things he brings. It's just him. He doesn't say, I'll show you the way. He says, I am the way. In a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing. And then we have two tables here at the front and one at the back, and we'll take communion. It's a table of invitation where we have bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, and we'll dip the bread into the cup that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for us, for our forgiveness. It's a table of invitation because it's a table of remembrance, because it forces us to readdress what he has invited us into. That he gave his life and he invites us to give ours in return. It shows the ultimate sacrifice and generosity and kindness that Jesus was willing to give us. And our, our moment today is an invitation to take him up on it, to make an active commitment to it. I'm going to invite Greg and the band back up. And I've, I've asked them to sing something today that you'll get a chance to sing, but to begin with, I want it to be sort of, a, sort of a prayer that we each get to pray for ourselves. Sort of a moment that we each get to do the, the inventory of, am I following this Jesus? Or am I kind of doing the religious game? If I made it into something, it isn't. A few years ago, I went through a a season of ministry that was pretty scary. I was a full-time pastor. I preached to thousands of people every single Sunday. And if I was honest, I would have told you I couldn't find God's presence. I, I couldn't feel His presence. And I could say the right words. 
and I could read the right passage, and someone would come pray with me after church, and I could give them the right comfort. But unwittingly, I'd spent so long in the religious game, the full-time paid minister game, that I knew all the right things to say, but I didn't even know I was saying them anymore. God was gracious to me. I didn't have any crazy sin addiction or habitual nonsense show up. I didn't feel like I lost my faith. I just couldn't find God. And I realized it wasn't him who moved. That it was me. And I had applied my agenda to him. And I had applied my priorities to him. And I had started to make God into who I wanted him to be and and realized that God wasn't there. God was right where he was when I found him the first time. That feeling that you remember when you said, I'm willing to follow. That thing that happens on the inside when on the outside it's goosebumps. That's what you're being invited back into. Not his gifts, not his blessings. Him. That is his presence that he offers. It is his presence that he longs to give you. And when you have his presence, all of the other stuff doesn't matter. It takes care of itself. So my prayer for us this morning is that we might find ourselves caught up in his presence again. Back at the start of where this all began, that when each of us have the opportunity to say, yes, I will follow, that that's where we start today. So my prayer is that this becomes your prayer.